This episode of the Sunspots Comics Podcast is brought to you by our brand new sponsor, Cryptid Zoo. Cryptid Zoo is a t-shirt line uniquely infused with augmented reality and inspired by cryptozoology figures like Bigfoot. It is designed by artist and owner Julian Meyer, and check out the amazing unique shirt designs at cryptidzoo.com. And don't forget to use the promo code SUNSPOTSCOMICS and you will get 25% off your shirts. Again, that's www.cryptidzoo.com. If you're looking for a place where your love is shared the same For the stories where the hero saves the girl somehow Where love no further friends, the adventure never ends We will save the world somehow In Sunspots Comics Town Greetings, 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 greetings. Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Sunspots Comics Podcast, issue number 80, covering New Comic Book Day, November 9th. And let me tell you, it is a magical sanctum of comic book mysticism. I am your host, the Ancient One, Chris Latore. Thank you so much for joining in on the podcast of Strange Tales, that is the Sunspots Comics Podcast, where I give you an amazing list of comic books every single week to buy and read. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Xbox Live at Sunspots Comics. Also check out our brand new YouTube page. It's still just a little baby bird. YouTube.com slash Tophelat, T-O-P-H-E-E-L-A-T. Thank you so much to my friend Nick Papa George for making our fantastic, amazing Sunspots Comics theme song. I love it. And please follow him on Facebook.com slash Nicholas Dell Music. He's got a brand new single. It's called Power Within You. It's very positive. It's very ska, island, reggae infused, and it is good stuff. You can even go right to iTunes. Just search Nicholas Dell, D-E-L-L. And thank you to my son, Justin Jables Latori, for his work on the Sunspots Comics blog. Please check it out at blog.sunspotscomics.com. And follow him on Instagram. He just changed his Instagram handle, at just sunspots. And his latest blog is on his review of the fantastic Doctor Strange movie. And it's it's a great blog. Thank you very much, Justin. So without uh, further ado, let's jump right in to Sunspots Comics Podcast issue number 80 with some stuff floating around in my nerd brain. And the first thing that comes into mind was something I just purchased. It's called the Star Wars BB-8 Force Band by Sphero. And you can check them out at Sphero.com. And my wife and I are annual pass holders to Disneyland, so luckily they accepted uh, our annual pass holder uh, passport for a discount. Uh, Although strangely, you normally get 20% off of things. They only give you 10% on things from Sphero. They consider it media, which is strange. They consider a a band that you wear on your wrist the same as a Blu-ray. But anyway, I still got 10% off, which was nice. And I love it. It pairs with your BB-8 remote control Sphero device. And you can use hand gestures like you're using the Force 
to control BB-8. It's so very cool and I will be showing a video on the YouTube page of me unboxing it, reviewing it, and sampling and showing it. So check that out soon at youtube.com slash tophelat. That's T-O-P-H-E-E-L-A-T. And another thing on my nerd lobes is the Doctor Strange movie. My wife and I were at Disneyland on Saturday and there was a Marvel themed marathon for charity and a bunch of people that had just finished the marathon were wearing these very cool Eye of Agamotto medallions. Like I really wanted one very badly. And there were even like full families wearing Doctor Strange inspired little outfits uh, after running the marathon or walking the marathon. And just people wearing Doctor Strange t-shirts. And I tell you, it was just very cool. It was just a very nerd, like cool nerd moment to see people supporting this Marvel character that I mean, it isn't as popular as, as all the rest, but it just really warmed my nerd heart to see a event out there, um, of course, for charity, and also the cool Eye of Agamotto medallion for finishing the, the marathon. And again, it just warmed my heart, and it was very cool to see people out there wearing Doctor Strange stuff, and it's just on their minds, and it's it's just kind of nice that it's in the zeitgeist, zeitgeist of, our, of our brains. So just very cool. And last thing on my nerd brain is I'm actually writing a comic book called Zombie Destroyers. I'm doing the uh, writing, the coloring, the lettering, and my friend Jordan is doing the fantastic, beautiful art. Please check out his Instagram, at Jordan underscore Hudson underscore art. It's beautiful. Thank you very much, Jordan. And we also have some samples of the first four pages of our comic, which is called Zombie Destroyers, on the website zombiedestroyers.com. I just posted some stuff there recently. Please check it out from time to time. And just a quick Zombie Destroyers update, 15, page 15 is done, it looks glorious. Uh, Jordan's finishing up on doing page 16, and I just finished the final writing on page 17 and turned that in. So uh, we're good to go, it's moving right along, and the end uh, to issue number one is coming very soon. So very exciting that I'll be going to print and getting it out there for everyone to see. So very, very cool, and please check out zombiedestroyers.com from time to time. So next up is our segment called Spotlighting. I actually have two submissions. The first one, a quick thank you to comic book writer Howard Shapiro. He sent me two of his hockey comic books, Hockey Saint and Hockey Karma. These are graphic uh, novel style comic books. They're like 130 to 160 pages, but in kind of a smaller format, which is very nice. It's not quite, say, TV guide size, but it's I guess it would be about six by five which is kind of cool. It's a little smaller than standard comic book floppy format and a little, I guess even a little smaller than some of the lower sized trade paperback graphic novel collection size. So it's kind of a cool little format. Some great paper stock, but I will be reading both of these and having Howard on a future podcast. So please uh, check out all of his work on howardshapiro.net and his links to buy his work on Amazon are right there at the bottom of the site. So thank you very much, Howard, for sending me your work. I'm going to read them all and we'll have you on a future podcast. So very, very cool. And the second spotlighting submission this week is from independent comic book writer and creator, Miles Greb. And he created a comic book called After the Gold Rush, along with some other things, too. And he just released issue number two. It just came out. I read it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Miles was nice enough to have a conversation with me here on the podcast. So I'm going to jump right into it. Into it. Enjoyed it. It's about 20 minutes or so. Me and Miles Greb, the creator of After the Gold Rush. So here you go. Enjoy. Well, thanks again, Miles, for joining me, man. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. You know, I have my Earl Grey tea on and just being lazy on a Sunday morning. Oh, nothing, nothing better than that. What's your, uh, what's your day looking like? Like, what are you up to today? Um, so first thing I'm going to do is I got to ship out some books that some nice people bought for me. And then I'm going to work on this 
fundraiser. A couple of our artists um, and a certain comic book company are going to help me with. We're trying to do like a, a comics for choice Planned Parenthood fundraiser thing. So trying to work out the details on that at the moment. And then, you know, I'll probably just be lazy and watch football the rest of the day. Nice. Sounds good. Yeah, my Kings are playing right now. So it's deep, oh, deep, got a DVR. No spoilers. There you go. <laughs> so please, uh, I, a couple things right on my brain right up, right at the top is I wanted to ask you a little bit about your, your comic book origin story. Like, kind of sure. tell me where you're from and maybe what, what, how you started reading comics and like maybe even what was the first comic book you remember reading. Yeah, so I grew up in Northern California, um, not Bay Area, Northern California, where there, there's pine trees and blackberry bushes and fields. Um, you'll see that if you read after the gold rush, because that's where it's set. So I was up with my grandmother one day, about three or four, and went to a yard sale. She bought me this. Um, it's what I believe is the first trade paperback uh, for comics, actually. It has Stan Lee's hands on the cover on a typewriter, and it's a bunch of origin stories. It's like um, Amazing Fantasies 15 and Journey the Mystery and Tells of Suspense, Fantastic Four number one. Um, and it had all their origin stories. So the first comic I ever read, actually, was Fantastic Four number one. Wow. And um, I kind of fell in love with all those, especially Fantastic Four and Amazing Fantasies. Uh, there was something about Fantastic Four number one because, like, they became superheroes by like wanting to uh, make sure the West got its got its you know shit together in science before Russia did. And you know, it was like Fantastic Four was all about teamwork and optimism and like the bad thing that happened to them the cosmic rays you know is the direct result of them trying really hard to push science forward and I always really stuck with me and then you know amazing fantasies which is a story archetype that jack kirby invented that stanley later co-opted with his book with dicko um there was something just so personal about that it was a complete story i think it may still be the best comic ever written um because it has a complete ending that really nails that message home that uh that you need to look out for other people and that you need to be ethical all the time. And, and you know, it's, that's, that's something that I also learned from Star Trek later on, but it was right there early on for me in those, those two issues of Marvel. So that's kind of where I got started and, and those books still matter to me a lot. So. I, I miss Fantastic Four, you know, I mean, what, what's your take on it right now? I mean, for me, it, it, they've always been the centerpiece of the Marvel universe. And right now they're just, uh, where are they? You know? I'm currently not reading Marvel because of that. Yeah. Uh, I don't really want to participate in the Marvel Universe if the first family isn't there. I think it's a little disrespectful, to be honest. Um, well said, yeah, first family. I like that. Yeah, so, I mean, Hickman's run was fantastic and very respectful to everything they were and what they're about and what they should be. Um, hopefully one day, if I'm lucky enough, uh, my run will be too. Because, uh, you know, I'm writing one on the side. Nice. Nice. I'm ever called up into the big leagues to work on that. But, yeah, the, the, like I said, the first family is about, you know, it, they obviously have pretty wonky science, but they, they still care about science. You know, they have unstable molecules and a bunch of bullshit, but that's fine. <laughs> you know, they do the best they can. They didn't know about science very well in the 60s. They just thought it was cool because they were in the atom age. But more than that, it's also it's about optimism and teamwork and, and fraternity and all those things. You know, it's really present in that book that isn't always in other books. And I think that they really lost that um, in the Marvel Universe altogether. Not every Fantastic Four run always has it, but it's at the core of what they are. It's really unfortunate that they're not there. It's sad to see, and that's why I'm not reading Marvel right now, everything that's created in the universe is always told, Tony Stark tech this, Tony Stark tech that. And it's just sad because it's just such a sea change because of external non-comic forces, obviously, that it's not Reed's tech anymore. 
And it's just this yeah. constant reminder that the first family isn't the heart of Marvel anymore, and I just think it's sad. And I can't help but feel I agree with you on that area, and I can't help but feel that it's like it's more of the movie contracts that's causing a lot of this rift here, and, I, and I'm not a not a big fan of that. I said let's get it back together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to bash people that enjoy the films. I mean, there's a lot of people that have a glimpse at an adaptation of what Marvel is to the films. I just find them to be a bit hollow. I, I go see them with my friends. They're fun one time, but I don't know. I, if people enjoy those, just know that that is just um, a shadow of, of the depth of what Marvel is. Now, Marvel can be clumsy, and it can be imperfect, but the idea of this big shared universe that we had from, you know, uh, Marvel Comics 1 with uh, the Human Torch and Namor, all the way up to the end of, you know, Hickman's Secret Wars run. Like, this whole big tapestry, it's made by a lot of people. So, you know, some squares in it are clumsy and, and awkward, but it was beautiful when it was together. And it was about making that universe. And now it doesn't seem to be that way anymore, and, and that's too bad. Agree. Well said. I hope they get back to it. I hope they get their, get their crap together. <laughs> yeah, one day maybe. Absolutely. Like, what do you? Uh, what's what's going on in the nerd portion of your frontal lobes right now? Like, what's what are you kind of nerding out, enjoying, or reading right now? Um. So I just got my Frame Meister set up for my Super Nintendo, so okay. I can play full RGB support on my Super Nintendo. So I've been playing through Secret of Mana because I never got that. Awesome. Um. So that's been pretty cool. Um. Reading wise, I'm reading. Uh, bunch of dark horse star wars that i haven't read there isn't much i haven't read but a couple of those and then let me see what's this? some of that stuff is great uh, yeah know. i i read all the books i didn't have a couple of the comics but i recently just got them like crimson war i think is the one i didn't have um i'm reading this it's called sword of glass which seems really cool it was a french um comic that has been translated it seems really beautiful so um mostly indie stuff I haven't been reading much marvel lately I have been on a quest these years to read every single issue of Amazing Spider-Man, um, including Spectacular Excellent. Spider-Man, Unlimited Spider-Man, Peter Parker Spider-Man, Web of Spider-Man, etc. Uh, I have finished up the Clone Saga, which was just a dross. It was, <laughs> it was, it was hard to do, and so I've taken a, a break from that. Luckily, Ramita's last, Ramita Jr.'s last issue, where he fought the Green Goblin, was better than the... <laughs> the rest of that um, packed in garbage. So that kind of cleansed my palate a bit, but I, I need a break from it for a while. Yeah, the clone, the clone saga will, will definitely want you to make take a break. That's weird. You and I have that in common. Like, I'm actually reading right now. I, I got this a few years ago, and it's it's oh, cool. amazing. All 40 years. The ROMs, yeah. Yeah, from, uh, from issue 1 to, to 500, uh, from cool. the very start all the way to December 2003. So like uh, yeah, I'm actually in the I'm in the seventies because I've I read through a ton of the eighties when I was a kid and I did live through the saga the clone saga. I don't know if you 90s. can see over there, but I have amazing. I just bought Amazing Fantasies three hundred. Oh awesome! I got it up on the wall. Very so. cool. Well, yeah. you and I have that in common. It's uh it's interesting and to see the 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 changes the evolution in comics through uh, through sort of each decade too is just yeah. so it's so. Prevalent. I really like the Tom DeFlacco controlled years of spider-man now nothing like yeah. major happened then so it's kind of often forgot but he was a really steady steward of spider-man you know yeah i agree he, he wasn't a denethor right and talk about optimism though right it's always just seems to be the primary player and that that leads me right into to after the gold rush like the couple of things that, that i feel reading your comic is the the definite uh, the weight and the authentic feel of science 
and then the the ultimately positive nature of the of the comic in the realm of science like what what led you to that like what i mean i know besides the fantastic four stuff sure um, um you know man i was just watching all the sci-fi everyone is making and you know like zombies got popular a while ago and like when 28 days later came out which they're kind of infected more than zombies but whatever it like started this whole trend and then you know there was this whole post-apocalyptic after post-apocalyptic thing and it was just going on and on and you know, it was fine for a while. It, it's a medium that's interesting. Um, but it just wouldn't stop. Yeah. And then I see all this cynicism over just a myriad of different topics online. And, you know, it's like, oh, look at this bad thing's happening. This bad thing's happening. I'm like, yes, a lot of those things are bad. But look at the data. I mean, life expectancies go up. Poverty goes down. Rights for women increases. Our, our reach and knowledge increases. You know, all these things are getting better. I mean, we have this amazing lens called the Internet, which we can magnify in any cross-section of reality, and we can find whatever we are looking for, if it's a negative narrative or it's a positive one. But when you actually try to be objective and look at the data, things are getting better. Uh, opposed for this tyrant that recently took office, <laughs> things have been getting better. Um, where is that? Where, where is that idea? Where's the reality of that in media? I don't see it anywhere. Um, Roddenberry's gone. His show's gone. They've turned it into an action movie with where they fight aliens with Beastie Boys music. <laughs> a, lot of, and, a lot of lens flares. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I just, I didn't have any stomach for it anymore. And um, I went to Emerald City Comic Con a few years back, and I saw this really great trend of comics trying to be much more inclusive to groups that were traditionally uh, marginalized or just not included. You know, there, there were different ethnic groups, different... Um, cultural backgrounds, um, different sexual backgrounds, being more, um, you know, more manifest in comics, both in creators or characters. And I thought that was really cool, but I didn't see any atheists or skeptics in any of the main books. And I talked to some of the guys at Marvel, some, some big names there, and they said, yeah, they can't really mention it. You know, like, Reed's an atheist. They can't call him an atheist, though. They just have to say, oh, yeah, I'm a scientist. That's the key for kind of not God, but maybe. Um... And, you know, I was like, well, there should be a book that's an atheist skeptic science book. There should be that. And so I was thinking about what to do. And um, I really wanted to create this thing that reminded me of Fantastic Four. It was about journey and exploration. And, um, you know, the whole trend about post-apocalyptic stuff is fear of a paradigm shift. So there is a paradigm shift in my book. I can't tell you what exactly happened, but clearly the Earth is different than you might suspect for the year 2449. Um, but it, it wasn't post-apocalyptic. We find Earth lush. It's green. Something else happened, but you'll have to read to find out. Yeah, I get that sense of Earth returning to its original design. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, man. I'm a big fan, and I can't wait to uh, read. So I won't even ask you for spoilers. I want to I enjoy the journey. Sure. <laughs> but uh, one thing I, I really enjoyed about uh, your character, Scout, mm -hmm. is that um, you seem to have a sensibility here of, of writing this younger female character. Like, where does, that, where does that come from, from you? Like, well, I don't know, man. Uh, I, grew up with, I grew up with the, I, my, my sisters, my mom, and, uh, you know, some single mom raised mostly. So I kind of know where it comes from for me, even my core, uh, from my mother and my sisters. But where, where for you? Like, where does that come from? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. I had a lot of female friends growing up that potentially could have given me a certain amount of empathy or understanding. I, I don't know exactly. Um, I just, you know, I try to think in her headspace as much as I can. 
uh, like I'll just take a walk in the woods and try to think as she does. I mean, the thing about Scout is she grew up in a society that's very different than ours. Um, she's never encountered superstition or religion before. She doesn't know about a lot of the prejudices that we have. Um, she thinks everything like a biologist or a chemist. She grew up on Titan with just her mother and her father. She grew up trying to genetically modify plants to live in a super nitrogen, high radiated, really cold world. And so that's what she thinks about. I mean, she has, you know, what is essentially the internet to look things up on Earth. And she knows about Earth in a certain sense, but she just doesn't see the same things that we do. You know, she, everything she thinks about is, is in a scientific way. And so that's why she comes off a little dorky sometimes, because she's just so excited about stuff that other people aren't, and it, it comes off a bit awkward, but... Yeah, I don't know, man. I just try to write her like a, a young girl that that just really only cares about science. So I hope it comes off right. Oh, it totally does. I mean, uh, you're you're ultimately experiencing uh, this world through her eyes and her optimistic view of everything, and it's it's refreshing. I mean, I, I don't want to name names of other writers, but you can always feel when a, a an older thirty, forty something year old man is writing a younger teenage, you know, girl. And you just feel it, and you know it, and and there's they sort of take an extreme approach on it. Yeah. And yours is just sort of a nice, very sensible, very realistic approach to Scout, and I, I really like that. Well, thanks, man. I'm glad it worked out good. So. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it's I can't wait to see where you know more of it. But uh, so tell me something else too. Um, your the the science aspect of it, like mm -hmm. where does that? It, it definitely, I feel like it's in your background. It's part of who you are. It's it's what you enjoy in life. Like. Uh, why the the very realistic, authentic approach to science? Besides, I already see the Fantastic Four, your Star Trek. Sure. What else beyond um, that? So Carl Sagan was another massive influence on me, which isn't unique amongst the skeptic and science enthusiast ilk. Um, I, I see this very common retort you'll see in like theist versus atheist arguments. There's this whole look at the trees argument that they often say. They're like, oh, of course there's a God. Look how beautiful this thing is. Look how interesting this thing is. Or even people who aren't religious, who are just prone to narrative-based thinking, they're like, oh, yes, but my story is so much better than the truth. And I'm like, that's because you don't understand the depth of the truth. Yeah. Like, you don't understand how complicated everything is and how interesting it is that we're anything at all. You know, you yeah. think about the fact that the only reason you are the way that you are is because physics happened to work out a specific way so that it was selected over eons for these molecules to replicate this particular way. These molecules eventually replicated in a way that created proteins. You know, they had the right energy sources so they could replicate it at enough speed so they could learn to replicate better to make new proteins, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, like, that is amazing. And I don't like this idea that science is stuffy and boring or science is just a bunch of answers or science is just a bunch of feats of engineering. Science is a methodology for understanding the world designed to fix our flawed cognitive problems that we have as people. And that's not because it's trying to make everything lame and stuffy. It's trying to get to us the interesting truths that we could never figure out on our own. Like, we would have never figured out, based on our intuition, as useful sometimes as our intuition is, that the reason why um, hard substances are harder than soft substances is because their molecules are further apart than closer apart. I mean, that's just completely unintuitive, but it's the truth. And how interesting is that? And so I just want that to be the way that the comic kind of talks about science. So I well, guess that's, that's my influence. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's your love of it is ultimately what, I, what I'm taking away. And uh, 
and you definitely have poured that out into into after the gold rush. You feel it. How did you uh, tell me a little bit about your team that you gathered here, and like, how did you meet your team, and how are they? Sure. You know? Um. Well, Isaac is, is very shy. He lives in Chicago. I was lucky enough to meet him on DeviantArt. I've never met him in person, um, oh, but wow. we speak a lot online. He, um, you know, I I was designing Scout. I can't draw that well, but I can draw a little bit. And I was, you know, making notes how I wanted to be and stuff. And I, I sent him the, the stuff. And I was like, hey, man, you know, would you be willing to do, like, a, a character sketch? Almost like a D&D kind of layout of my character. And he's like, yeah, no problem. And, you know, we got the first thing of Scout. She was a little bit younger in her first reiteration, you know. And I really liked it. But I didn't think it was quite right. So we went back and did a second one. I posted the original concept before if people want to see it. Um, but, yeah, we went back. And then, like, he did her in both of her suits. We worked on her environmental suit. And then her cryo suit, um, and I was like, "Yeah, man, that's it. You got to do the book." And so he'll be doing the first three. We're working on three right now. Um, we're trying to get it done faster, especially because, like I said, all this negativity that just arose to power in the West. Got to try to do the best I can to counteract it. Right. <laughs> um, you know, the colorist for the first one was local. The colorist for the second one I met on Twitter. Uh, he contacted me. I am looking for a colorist for the third book, actually. So if anybody wants to. Hey, shout out there. Look for yeah. colors. <laughs> um, but yeah, like in Fur Clovis, which is my next graphic novel, which is a, a prehistorical fiction, follows a young mother alone in the Pleistocene era. Um, Zach Hartong is the artist for that. I, I met him on Twitter as well, and he's doing a fantastic job on that one. Yeah, Zach's art's nuts. I mean, so is Isaac. Like, did you also do the, the plots, the layouts for Isaac? Yeah, I do all the layouts. Okay. Um, so basically the way it works is I, I do the, the all, all the panels. I'd say how the panels, what size they should be and what order they should be in the script um, and what should happen in them. And then Isaac sends me back pencils, which are his rough estimations to see if we agree. And, and he does add some good input sometimes. Some things are different than how I designed them, especially with Isaac. Zach's a bit more particular about following um, kind of how I prescribe it. But, um, yeah, and so, you know, I okay the pencils, we make notes, and then he gives me back the inks, and then we – Go over the final inks, and then if they're cool, we send them to the colorist. And um, there's a phase in there, too, where I run it by some of my PhD friends to make sure everything's accurate. Because although I'm trying to become a biologist, I, I unfortunately do not have a degree in it as of yet. Yeah, good luck with that. That's a... Yeah, I'm trying, man. I just don't have the time, you know? I got Scott, I take a lot of time. Like, so colors, uh, I, when you, um, Adrian's, I'm looking at uh, issue two mm -hmm. right now of After the Gold Rush. Adrian's color palette is just so bright and, and warm. And these yeah. fantastic uh, multicolored tones in the palettes everywhere. You think you'll change that color style? Uh, in, no, having new I think just... um, mostly invented the way that we're going to color the book that way. Huh. Um, you know, this painterly kind of style, mm -hmm. and um, we were able to accomplish it well in the second issue. And that's the way the book should be colored most of the time. Um, I want it to be brighter and kind of painterly, as Isaac describes it. I don't know if that's the normal term people use, but that's what he says, so I'm going to go with <laughs> painterly. I like that. terminology. It works. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Um, but no, I, I think number two came out well. I hope people like it. You know, um, that I, I really like how Tolkien starts Fellowship off with this kind of prolonged getting to know the characters before most of the narrative starts in. And so um, as a devotee of his, that's kind of what I'm doing with After the Gold Rush. So I hope people don't mind that there's not a bunch of action in the beginning. No. I mean, if, if you like any sort of longer-term narrative, you're going to enjoy the development of Scout here. And that's what I like because I, I, for me, am an optimist as well. And I want to be able to root for the, the primary character yeah. in the story. And you easily set that tone quickly here. It's just that wonderment in her eyes and that optimism and 
I, you, I tried to make Earth seem alien, but yeah. in a realistic way without any gimmicks. Yeah. You know, I didn't want it to be like, oh, there's something really weird here, so is, is this Earth? You know, like, she's used induction to figure out that it's probably Earth, but she doesn't know for sure, so. Yeah. Now, you've uh, you've been really successful in the marketing of it. I've looked uh, a little bit at your your, uh, your your Kickstarter campaign and the funding you received for that, and can you talk a little bit about how that process works and how it sort of started and how you got to where it was really, I mean, just really successful? Well, thanks, man. Um... You know, like, when I was first starting wanting to make a comic, a lot of people told me I should make something smaller, maybe black and white for the first, but I don't know, man, I I didn't want to fuck around, you know, like, <laughs> I just wanted to make the book as I wanted to make it, and so, like I said, I was lucky to get Isaac on, and then I was like, okay, I gotta figure out the best way for this, and um, luckily, um, I, I got to be on Skeptic's Sky of the Universe, which is the largest skeptic science podcast out there, and that kind of gave me a lot of early attention. So I was very fortunate for that. And so a lot of people paid attention to the first Kickstarter. And, you know, like, it was it was essentially the first book with an openly atheist character in, a, in an atheist world. There, there's other books that have had atheist characters that are indie books, but they always also have magic and supernaturalism in them. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't mean to throw any shade at them. That's perfectly fine. Um, but that's not really an atheist science book. Yeah. You know, that's kind of like an anti-theist book, which is fine, but it's not really what I wanted to do. So I got some attention for that, and I, I hope people liked the story and Isaac's art, and then Barry did the cover art for it, which, you know, is a bit non-traditional for modern comics, but I wanted to have kind of that older, like, science textbook kind of look to it almost. I don't know. I, I hope people like I think the cover is really beautiful. The covers and, are, um, are ridiculous. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. at the issue number two's cover right now, and it's just, it's it's beautiful. I mean, it's just have you inspired. seen number three? The cover? Yeah. I think I have, I'm on your site now. I'm going to go check it out. <laughs> Here, I'll send you. Let me see. How do I send it to you? It's on your site? I don't know if it's on the site. Oh, okay. Yeah, please send it to me. I'd love to look yeah. at it. Love, yeah. love, love. So tell me something else, too, about the creative process for you. Like, when when does it happen? You know, when is there a place, a routine, something that gives you ideas and creative juices? Uh, I mostly make up stuff in the shower. In the shower? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, man. Like, I don't know. I, I grew up with a hot tub that's kind of on a deck in the woods, so I <laughs> kind of go out there and just kind of space out and think. And so the best I can approximation I have of that now is a shower. So I normally put on, like, you know, Velvet Underground or Neil Young or something and just kind of, like, hang out in the shower and just kind of, like, in the steam and just kind of ponder. And I try to get myself in the headspace of the characters and write out their dialogue and stuff. Um, but, I don't know, a lot of it comes to me kind of quick. I grew up making, like, really fast on-the-spot D&D campaigns, you know, because uh, my friends always wanted to play, but we didn't have time to write them out. So I just kind of have a lot of experience just getting going on the plot, you know. Wow. So I guess it's a bit of both of that. How do you capture it, you know, when you're in the shower? Like, if you have this idea and you're like, don't don't you ever go, oh, my gosh, I'm, I want to make sure I hold this and I don't forget it. Like, how do you capture something when an idea starts? Oh, I don't. I forget a lot of it. <laughs> Probably a lot of the best stuff, you know. But, um... <laughs> Just like I set a recorder, to. set a recorder by the shower, you know, yeah. just to, and yell it out loud. <laughs> I'll yell something at my roommate, who's also the editor of the book. I'll be like, Drew, you know, don't forget. <laughs> Write this crap down. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know, man. I, I got a lot of ideas. Some of them make it into the book, so hopefully those are the best ones. Hopefully there's a selection bias to what I remember, but I can't be certain that that's true. Nice. I mean, you don't Yeah, I mean, like... I don't really have, like, a special super process or anything you know i just try to like i said just try to think like the characters as much as i can i find that totally interesting when like writers creators have they're either you know it's kind of it's it's all over the place really they either have like yeah. a very set technique 
or it, inspiration just magically happens at various moments and or driving right a lot of people say you're in the car sure. and it just happens there and uh, for me uh, the comic i'm writing like if i listen to anything with words it screws me up like i just can't have any yeah. words <laughs> happening <laughs> so yeah when I, I listen to music when i'm writing i normally listen to like final fantasy soundtracks oh, um nice. because and you know, there's no words so it's a bit easier to pay attention so yeah so final fantasy 4 soundtrack or something that's very very nice I remember listening to some Metroid uh, Metroid soundtrack not too long ago. Sure, yeah. It's just, oh, man, I love that. It's just great. Yeah, it's good stuff, man. But uh, another question for you, too, uh, while it's still here on my brain, mm-hmm. is uh, is give me uh, the snapshot. I'm only right now invested into After the Gold Rush, but I'm going to be diving into your other stuff. So for even my for people that haven't heard your work, give us the sort of the rundown on, on After the Gold Rush and the other projects you're working on, which are all on your site, by the way, afterthegoldrush.space. But... Give me a quick just rundown, if you can, and, uh, you know, snapshots into your other work. Sure, you know, after the Goldrush, of course, as we've been talking about, it's like a return to optimistic science fiction. It's about the conflict between science and religion. Um, Clovis is a prehistorical graphic novel set in the Pleistocene era, which is 14,000 years ago in North America. I'm trying to be as scientifically accurate with that book as I possibly can. Of course, since it's archaeology and a little bit of anthropology, since we don't actually know too much about the Clovis people. Um, who were probably the first, perhaps the second, group of people to come into North America. Um, they're not necessarily what we would refer to as the phrase Native Americans because they're, they're, um, they are before them. Um, but it's interesting, the genetic history there, but that's not necessarily important to the plot. Um, it's about Mia, who is a young mother who buries her first son, who is a historical person named Anzik who we've um, dug up his grave. It shows beginning her burying him in the actual gravesite with the artifacts we found there. And since she's by herself, she's never seen a plume of smoke before. So seeing one in the horizon, she hopes it's some kind of sign of her son. And she follows it across the wilderness. She eventually befriends a megatherum, which are these 14 to 17 foot tall giant sloths um, that were alive in North America at the time. And they continue on their journey. Wow. And uh, Zach Hartong's art on that one um, is absolutely amazing. Um, so I'm really happy to have him on that project. He's doing the lettering, the inks, the colors, everything. So it's oh, wow. really fantastic. Um, we funded that on Kickstarter a while ago. It's going to be a full graphic novel, oh, cool. 100 pages with like this zoo book section in the back that's going to have um, information on all the different um, mammalian creatures that we encounter along the way. Um, yeah, so that I was really happy with that one. And the cover art is by Naomi on that, who also does some actually Gold Rush webcomic stuff. So wow. uh, really happy with that whole project. Awesome. I'm going to check it all out. Thank you so much. And thank you for, for being here and, and letting me talk to you. And I've, I've had a blast. And I'm a fan. And I'm going to continue to buy your work. Thank you for sending me that. I just got your cover for issue three. When does that come out? When does After the Gold Rush 3 come out? So we are starting work on it right away. Um, Isaac's going to give me the thumbnails really soon. So I don't know when it's going to come out. Hopefully soon. I have another Kickstarter. We'll go live in February. Probably one of my two fantasy comics, either Espers, which is a creation mythology, or The Artist, which is kind of like an epic adventure comic about a world where everything's created by artists. Um, one of those will probably come out February, soon followed by After the Gold Rush 3. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait for it. Please tell everyone and myself where we can find you, where we can buy your stuff, uh, where you prefer us to look. Sure, yeah, you can go to um, at Gold Rush Comic on Twitter, which is probably one of my most active hubs. You can also just go to After the Gold Rush on Facebook or on Instagram with just Miles Greb, or you can go to After the Gold Rush Space to grab a copy of my book, check out the webcomic, 
Um, you can send me a peer review message if you see any scientific inaccuracies in absolute goldfish number one or two, or have any kind of commentary, please write in to me and I will respond um, to them as best I can. Oh, and last thing too, thank you again for putting me in the peer review at the end of issue number two. I really appreciate that. Like that. Oh, thanks for writing a, a criticism. I always appreciate them. So. Yes, but uh, I love it. And after the gold rush, uh, to me, is uh, something I, you know, my only wish, of course, is that it was uh, more often. I can get a lot of it. Uh, <laughs> uh, me, me too, man. I, I'm way ahead writing it. So, you know. Nice. Well, thank you very much, Miles. I really appreciate it. And again, I'm honored to be that uh, in, in the back of issue number two. And uh, can't wait for issue number three. I'm going to look forward to it. Thanks again. Yeah, no problem. Man, oh man, that was fun. Thank you again, Miles, for joining us here on the podcast. That was just, you're a very classy individual. Thank you so much for being here. What an interesting conversation. What a fun talk we had. I really enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to having another one in the very near future. But please check out Miles' website, afterthegoldrush.space. It'll lead you to everything that he's working on, which is positive. It's optimistic. It's fantasy. It's science fiction. It's just good, top-notch work from a man that is just very inspired and putting his love right onto the page, uh, which is his love of science fiction and his optimistic look on science. And uh, please, again, check him out, afterthegoldrush.space. So if you yourself or somebody you know is an independent comic book creator, we want to help you out. We want to support you. We want to show your work to the world if we can and uh, and give our support to you for all of you struggling creators. So if you're a, a writer, an artist, a color, a letterer in the world of comic books and you're trying to make it out there and you're struggling to become uh, a comic book creator... Just send your work to me, send a link to me, send your a review copy to my email, chris at sunspotscomics.com. Or, of course, just message me on all social media at sunspotscomics. So we will definitely help and do our part to spread the word. And now on to my favorite part of the Sunspots Comics podcast, which is my comic book reviews and recommendations where I pick my favorites, discuss them, and recommend what I recommend you go out and buy for new comic book day, November 9th. And, of course... Spoiler-ish alert, but really don't worry, I leave the last couple of pages alone, I'm just really trying to work hard to just persuade you into buying these comic books, so I really don't spoil them too heavily. I just want to give you the gist, I just want you to sort of kind of fall in love with it or pique your interest and you want to go buy it, and I really just want to make sure that I'm doing that. So really no no need for worry, uh, I do my best here to just uh, keep it light in the spoiler department, but like I said, just kind of trying to talk you into going and buying this stuff because it is good, top-quality stuff. And to see everything that I'm reading, all of my favorite picks back to May of 2015, just go to sunspotscomics.com, click on Pull List. You'll see now that I'm up to 121 titles. I just updated it that I'm actually reading it, uh, reading it this time. And click on Top Comic Book Picks of the Week. You'll see everything, all of my top picks going all the way back to May of 2015. I just updated the site, so it is all there. I'm super proud of it. Please check out sunspotscomics.com. Com. And this week, I actually, of course, every single week pick out a art winner and a art cover winner. This week, the art winner is Luca Casalinguida. I apologize if I messed that up for his beautiful work on James Bond Hammerhead issue number two. It is gorgeous. The cover is the art cover winner by Francesco Francovia. And I love blue, I love black, I love white. It has all of that sprinkled in with some red. And you have a, like a great white shark on the cover. Who doesn't love great white sharks? Like one of my favorite animals. But his art is very James Bond appropriate. It's very James Bondy and iconic. And his lines are super duper clean. The coloring has that sort of animated coloring style, but has a realistic tinge to all of it. And he really makes James Bond look sort of dashing and and, and dastardly at the same time. And 
you know, it's there's so many typical iconic looks here in this James Bond comic. And he loves to live in the world of blue and black and white. And I love that. It just seems my eye really just, just gravitates to that color. It's my favorite color, blue. But his lines are gorgeous. Very clean, very finished, very polished, not scratchy at all. And the way he depicts action is fantastic. I mean, there's a great white in this issue. And it just looks realistic. I mean, it's tough to draw animals that sort of real that look real unless they do digital photo rendering, and then it just looks completely. I don't know. Just uh, it detaches you from a realistic feel. This you can tell is hand drawn, yet it looks right, and everything in the action sense of things moves really, really well. So beautiful arc. Thank you, Luca Casalanguida, and also Francisco Francavilla for the gorgeous, gorgeous cover. That's James Bond. 007 Hammerhead, issue number two. And this week, I actually bought 19 comic books, and overall, eight of them made it to the great list, the favorite pick list, which is less than that 50%, but eight's pretty solid. You know, not bad. And new number ones this week, there were four new number week, new number ones this week, and only two of them made it to the top pick list, which is okay, which is good. I would have liked to have had more of them, but two of them were solid and made it to the favorite pick list. So here we go. These are my favorite comic book picks for New Comic Book Day, November 9th. Coming in at number eight is Invincible Iron Man, issue number one. Now, this was kind of the surprise favorite pick of the week for me. This is the origin of Riri, the new Ironheart character, Riri Williams, that is sort of replacing Tony Stark in the aftermath of Civil War II, which I don't even completely understand. It seems like they killed Tony Stark? I don't really know, but they reference him as not being available or around. But this is a a heartwarming origin. It surprised me in the level of art. It was everything is clean, beautifully colored, very sort of realistic, but it has that that Marvel feel to it. Oh, and there's like a little Easter egg where Riri's in the in the in the principal's office because she's bored at school. That's kind of the opening sequence. And she has her hair in like a couple of little pom-pom buns. And from the back and the sort of silhouette, it's Mickey Mouse ears. It's so clearly a hidden Mickey, if you will. <laughs> and uh, it's it's just blatant, you know, owned by Disney Marvel. But I still love this sequence. They, the principal talks about Riri just being bored at school. And if they don't start to, if the parents don't start to infuse some positive, like some positive feelings and challenging her mentally, you know, she things could go very wrong and she could rebel. And I like that they have sort of recognized that she is just magically this genius and she's destined for great things in the world of education if she is sort of maintained and kept on the right path. And I like that, that it's a, like a realistic take on them recognizing someone that's very smart and, and this principal wants to do his part to help to make them understand that you've got something unique here with your child being this smart and you have to be aware of it now and start doing some, making some changes and living your life according uh, to helping her uh, develop this, these, her amazing intelligence. So this has her with a Iron Man sort of suit that looks a little more like on the ROM side of things, which I like. It's just a silverish suit, spiked shoulders, and it still has that sort of classic Iron Man face, but the rest of it is almost not recognizable as an Iron Man, which is fine. They have to do their own thing. It almost has a little bit of a Robotech kind of feel to it, and especially with the ear shielding on the helmet. So I like it. It's an interesting little take, little new sort of fresh look to the Iron Man uh, suit and 
This uh, opens up with a sequence where there is a mutant that can sort of project these monsters from infusing her own DNA into these sort of monster-like visions. And I like the play with time here. They go into where it's 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 current day, and she's fighting this uh, this mutant with these monster-like powers that just wants to take over. And then they go back to her flashback of her origin in Chicago years ago. And you're introduced to like the the moment where she meets her best friend in the neighborhood. And it's just, it's cute. It's heartwarming. Riri definitely is a little socially stunted, if you will. Her intelligence is doing that to her. It's very clear. She'd rather sit in her garage and uh, build something with uh, random scraps that she finds than uh, be outside and playing. And her parents are really just trying to push her to go outside and less into the computer screens and less into making stuff and more into going to the park and hanging out and having friends. And, and that was neat and refreshing as well. And uh, and also just, it, it gives you that warm feeling of family here from the mother. And her stepdad, she's even close to. I like that he constantly just sort of checks up on her. But, uh, and coming from myself being a stepdad, it's tough, it's not easy. And he has to just approach her gingerly and kind of say very little, but but his presence is known and he's there. And I think that's key to being a stepdad because it's tough. You just have to, to you know, be yourself and, uh, and don't uh, try to pry into their lives too much. Just be supportive and let them know you're there. And the stepdad sort of does that. And that just got me right from the get-go. And she calls him Pops, which I call my dad Pops. So it just, uh, for me, it was tugging on those heartstrings. And the scene where the stepdad checks in with Riri and just... Just says, hey, you know, today is a good day. And Riri says, like, my stepdad always says that to me. I don't know. It's a little odd. But the look on his face that he really, truly cares for Riri was really heartwarming. And again, beautiful uh, art here by, uh, I got to introduce the whole team. This is Brian Michael Bendis doing a good job at writing a young pre-teen girl, I got to say. Stefano Caselli on art. Beautiful. And color by Marte Gracia. And just, just very clean, very polished, very beautiful. The attention to light source is beautiful. And that's all I want to tell you because there is some some things here that happen. There's a huge twist in it that happens. It uh, made my eyes well up a little. It's uh, and It relates to the family and what happens in this sort of introduction to her origin. And I, I bought it. I tell you, it was one that surprised me because I, I maybe initially sort of thought... This is off the list. I'm not going to bother. Uh, I don't know enough of what's happening in Civil War 2 with, with Iron Man. I should maybe stay away. And I decided to just give it a try. With just just throwing ca- a little caution to the wind and, and give it a buy and give it a try. And boy, I was not disappointed. I was very, very happy that they came out good. And I want to see where Riri goes. And I'm going to definitely add it to the pull list and check out uh, this further. So definitely check out Invincible Iron Man uh, number one here. Uh, Riri Williams, her origin. And uh, coming in at number seven is uh, Shipwreck. Shipwreck is from Aftershock Comics. It's written by Warren Ellis and drawn by Phil Hester. This is uh, definitely contender for Art Winner of the Week. It's it's uh, this particular comic is is dark. It's gruesome. It's strange and weird and twisted. And I don't quite know what's going on yet, but visually stunning. The art here is hyper detailed, very realistic, and this is the story sort of emanating around this strange bell in this strange town and it opens with this sequence of this native american man just flaying this man this old man he has him bound uh his legs and arms bound and he's dextering this guy if you know what i'm talking about (laughs) and it's gruesome it's gory 
And you first wonder, is this guy a serial killer? Is he a murderer? What's happening? And as our primary character wanders into the sequence as this older man is ripped to shreds and taken apart and his bones are grinded down into dust and the crows come in and pick at his his dead rem- at his remains and as our main character steps into the frame here uh he's he's just curious and that's just a strange reaction at first because it seems like he witnessed the whole thing he asked him what is he doing but it ends up this native american man is doing a ritual or he claims i mean there's no way to prove this as he steps in. He claims he's doing a ritual, a rite of passage, uh, a request that he has had to to uh, go through this death ritual from the last request of this man that was ill. And, I mean, he has a hammer and he's grinding his bones down and it's he's, he's putting cricket flour over it to just uh, help it disintegrate completely and turn right to dust and go back to the earth to, to complete this cycle of death. <laughs> But that alone was interesting enough to enjoy this comic. I can definitely say I've never seen that before in a comic book. Uh, this sort of a ritual. And I wonder if this has any truth in any whatsoever of a Native American death ritual. Because uh, I want to look that up and Google it. But uh, our main character here is still sort of wandering around. His uh, memory is like Swiss cheese. He's in this town where people seem to have a strange ritual uh, dealing with this bell. And even the science behind this bell, what they tell uh, people is that they are laid to death underneath the bell and it's it's rang continually and that it actually just sort of liquefies your internal organs from the sonic blasting of this giant bell. And why would they do that in this in this in this very strange sort of backwater old west style of town, but it's in modern day. And there is this uh, strange woman there that is sort of introducing uh, herself to our main character Jonathan Shipwright and is kind of flirting with him and hitting on him and you don't know why and it's, she seems like she has an ulterior motive and it's like I said I don't completely know what's going on here as Mr. Shipwright just wanders from a shipwreck which first you think maybe it's a ship in the ocean you realize it's maybe a spaceship and he's part of this organization but I don't really know what's going on but Warren Ellis is definitely taking his time and laying out a very strange story here uh, which uh, I have to see where this goes so please I urge you find uh, where you can because it's hard to get Aftershock comics almost anywhere most of the local comic book shops you need to tell them in advance and they'll order it for you before it comes out which is tricky or you can of course get it digitally but if you're a paper comic person Aftershock will be hard to find but find Shipwreck number two it is good work and Phil Hester's art is out of this world it's beautiful so coming in at number six is Violent Love number one so it's one of the two that made it into the top picks and this is interesting, unique, twisted. It reminds me of, uh, like, almost has Shakespearean-like reference here of this this odd couple, this, like, Bonnie and Clyde kind of couple that, uh, that this man tells the story to, like, his granddaughter in the mid-80s about, like, this true sort of criminal romance that was inspired by true events. And the grandfather's telling the story. You can't help but wonder, is the the guy in this this particular story? He does tell you right off the bat that it does not end well. That Daisy Jane and Rock Bradley, great names, uh, they're on the criminal spree here and it doesn't end well. But he's telling his granddaughter this story. He was kind of a, just kind of a, 
a, a bored granddaughter preteen that was hating the idea of having to spend time with her grandfather. And as he tells this wicked Bonnie and Clyde criminal story, the granddaughter is just completely enthralled and all in and listening to it. Has that Princess Bride sort of feel, right, with the granddad's telling the kid. Uh, and the kid doesn't really want to hear it at first, but then really ends up being interested. And I love that. That's uh, I love Princess Bride. And uh, so that mixes that together with, I said, Bonnie and Clyde and this this true romance kind of feel uh, comic. And that's where it is. You get the origin of Daisy in this. And it doesn't even seem like you get the origin of Rock Bradley yet, which is fine. This is just issue number one. So you're introduced to the grandpa and the daughter that gets that's getting told the story and Daisy. And Daisy Jane uh, is a waitress. And she's, you know, is uh, hating that job and hating being uh, flirted with and inappropriately touched and groped. And she, you can tell that just that, that anger and hatred is boiling inside of her. And this is like in the late 60s that it's set where Daisy is, uh, her origin story is being told. So I love the look of the diner and it's, it's very realistic and very kind of scratchy in lines, but very sort of quirky and unique style of art. Some great angles and great panel structure here. Beautiful. And he loves the color orange. It's like the whole thing is just orange and yellow and beige. He just loves to stay in that that Sunspots comics <laughs> theme of colors, which I love. And you have a, a just sort of an introduction to Daisy Jane's father who is mixed up with the wrong kind of criminal crowd. And this criminal crowd is torturing someone. And what's the heartbreaking little aspect of Daisy's origin is she finds her father. She finds out her father is mixed up in this criminal organization, and it kind of breaks her heart. And she leaves her father. And that's just the sort of beginning, like what happens there. And later on, she is sort of drawn into coming back to her father because she leaves to like go to school. But something happens here to her dad that has her going back to the old uh, old neighborhood. And that's just Daisy's start. It doesn't really go into up and running and off to the point to where she meets Rock Bradley. It's it's taken its time with a nice origin here. And I really like that. So get it for that. Violent love. It seems to be a very twisted tale of a, of a romantic tr- criminal love story. So definitely check it out. And coming in at number five is Glitter Bomb, number three from Image Comics. And this is uh, written by Jim Zub. And a line art by Debril Morissette Fan. And this art here is is very sort of very clean, but very no nonsense. Nothing sort of too out of the ordinary. It's 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 deeply rooted in realism in this art. And it's just nothing over the top. It's very very conservative for lack of a better word to describe the art. And its storytelling is very clean, very concise. This is the story of a Maybe early 30-something actress that's down on her luck. She just seems Hollywood, 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 just keeps kicking her while she's down. And she's just trying to make it. She's a single mom. She has this babysitter, uh, teenage babysitter, that's also trying to make it into the acting world. But I love the realistic look of Los Angeles in this. I mean, it seems very accurate the way the... The, the outskirts of Los Angeles are drawn in some of the city area. The way that, that Hollywood Boulevard is drawn here. It just uh, is very much a kind of, in a way, Los Angeles is a, is a character in this comic. It's like a love letter to Los Angeles. It has these, these great sweeping sunsets and a lot of oranges that really portray Los Angeles in a, in a kind of romantic way. And I like that. And our main character here, the one that is glitter bombing Hollywood... <laughs> Has uh, she stepped into the ocean in issue number one, and has this sort of alien DNA that's in taken over her body, 
and it doesn't seem she has much control of it or she even blacks out but it kind of has her 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 well-doing in mind and this this alien entity in her is helping her succeed and killing the right people in hollywood to kind of help her move up the ladder and and become a star again in hollywood so strange little twist on hollywood and this sequence uh this particular issue really focuses and centers around this other star that was on this tv show with her that decided to bounce out of this tv show and which kind of caused her sort of rejection of hollywood and then made her on the fringe of making it in in the acting business and yet the person that that bounced out of this show is now a superstar and is having his star on the hollywood walk of fame and it just feels real it has that that look and feel of los angeles and hollywood and our character goes to visit him and visit him in a car and has an exchange in here that I'll never forget. And I don't even want to tell you why I won't forget it because I want to spoil it. I really want you to enjoy it. But that is the core of this is who she's taking out in Hollywood to make it big. And it's an interesting, weird, twisted, dark, Twilight zone kind of story. But check it out. Glitter Bomb is great. I am loving it and it's dark and twisted. And coming in at number four is Green Valley issue number two this is also from image comics this is uh, written and created by max landis and pencil and cover art giuseppe camancoli and i love his work in, in spider-man and this is a very different sort of approach definitely very lord of the rings kind of style very game of thrones feel and look cliff wraithburn does some beautiful inking here and and john francois belliou doing color it's top-notch it's a rainbow of beautiful colors the opening sequence takes place here when it's a year after issue number one where are the, there's four knights basically that are that go out into the world and do good deeds and the town that they protected everything was great everything was perfect the main knight had a beautiful woman that he was in love with and wanted to retire and they were just sacked and the, the whole place was destroyed by these barbarian horde and it took the entire village out. The opening sequence is the aftermath of it. And this, there's still skulls and bones all throughout their village. And they don't live very far away from it. But it's like this reminder to them of their failure. And yet they lived as like these four like rock star knights <laughs> that, were, that just had it all. And now they're, the four of them are, are living alone in the outskirts. Uh, the, the swamp land uh, that isn't very far from... The village that was destroyed by these barbarians. And I kind of want to know what happened there. Did They left it off at a fight between the barbarians. Where our main character was just naked fighting these barbarians. And then boom, one year later. A little frustrating. But I have a feeling they're going to maybe go back to it or flash to it. Or maybe not. They're moving the story along. Which is definitely interesting. I like that. They have more story to tell. They're not going to dwell upon that. You kind of get the good base of what happened. And then we're on to what's going on now. So they are ultimately at each other's throats. They're living, the four of them, in this small little shack... And they're just on each other's nerves. They need to get out. The main character, though, is like even contemplating suicide. And it's a sad little opening. It's definitely an emotional ride that Green Valley is. And you feel for him because he's a very likable character. And his number two, it just can't stand seeing him like this. It's like watching his hero, his idol, just just go down in flames. And he's doing what he can. What he's trying to do is keep his head up. But he's, he, you know, the main character lost the love of his life. He just sort of wants death at this point and he's sort of over and done with it he's you know he's sleeping outside he's just he definitely is sad and depressed and 
you feel for him. The look that uh, Giuseppe Kimancoli does in art for the emotional look on his face. He's just, he's just, uh, he's done with life and wants to kind of end it. But he's, his three best friends are still hanging in there and trying to talk him out of it. And now they're quarreling. They're at each other's throats. And then we understand what, why this is called Green Valley. Well, sort of. There is a young squire here that tells them they need help, that there is a, a sorcerer and wizards and great power and something that is attacking his village and they need the four knights' help. And do they decide to do it? Uh, they kind of reluctantly uh, maybe decide they will, but I don't know. They're kind of, I mean, two of them seem to be sort of half-ass into it. So who knows? Uh, they're even maybe even potentially talking about breaking the group up, which is kind of what you're not hoping. You're hoping that doesn't happen because you're rooting for the four characters. They're interesting. They're written so very well by Max. So uh, that's where I want to leave it because uh, there's a little cliffhangery ending, but it's beautiful work here. Like I said, if you like fantasy, Lord of the Rings, uh, Game of Thrones, anything within that realm, just a story of four knights. I mean, the Excalibur kind of feel to it. It's swords, it's sandals, it's, it's good times, it's fun, and it's so beautifully drawn. And uh, I tell you, he's Giuseppe Kimmincoli has really taken a leap from his work on Spider-Man here. It's it's something extra special. It's beautiful. He's definitely investing. You can tell he loves it. So beautiful, beautiful art. And that's why Green Valley, definite pick. Grab it as soon as you can. So now we're in the top three. So here we go. Top three of the picks of the week. So coming in at number three is Resident Alien. And this is a Resident Alien, issue number three of four, A Man With No Name. This is from Dark Horse Comics. This is created by Peter Hogan and Steve Parkhouse. The script is from Peter Hogan and the art is from Steve Parkhouse. So you can tell they're both invested to it, being a two-part team here of writing and sort of art. And this is the story of, um, it's that kind of this quaint little story of, a, of an alien that is, that's crash-landed onto to America into this quaint little teeny town but very sort of norman rockwellian kind of style of town a small town where everyone's close and it's relatively good and he has been able to cloak his alien features and look human and actually land a job as like the local the little local house uh house war uh, doctor that will that he's kind of snarky but he'll he'll do house calls and he's the family sort of of doctor, pediatrician, veterinarian in this small little town. And he's thrust into these sort of mysteries that, that he has to sort of help solve because he he is uh, definitely a scientist of some sort. And I like that this is like the second or third volume of Resident Alien. And this, for the first time, goes a little into his origin and shows this strange planet that he's on. And he sort of reveals here that before he goes and tries to find this crash-landed sort of satellite of their technology that landed on Earth to sort of intercept it before humans find it and freak out and go on a destructive terror or who knows. He goes to Earth to find that and crash lands, unfortunately. And there's a little story here told about a, a, a woman that he cares about that chose to be with his family and not make the trip to Earth with him. And then you realize, oh, wow, like he's not only just crash-landed, but this is and not feeling a, a feeling of exile, but he's, um, you know, sort of in, in mourning of this sort of breakup from a woman that he cared about on his alien planet. So I love that that's infused to this. So you really do get like the first look into his origin. Strange that it's probably volume three and it's issue three. So we're probably like 12 or so issues in, 12, 15 issues in. And we're getting a glimpse. And I love the art style change from the sort of modern day Rockwellian style small town to 
uh, Mars or some sort of crazy alien planet. And this is kind of a cool, there's a cool conversation in this between the Native American uh, that's, that lives in this town and his daughter and that they have the ability to see him. He cannot cloak from them. So they, this, is, this particular issue focuses really on they approach him, they just started being able to see him, why they don't know, and he is someone that they already trust. They're not going to tell on him or let anyone know, but it's a great little conversation and just a, a family feeling. They, they sit down for a nice, nice American dinner, uh, having a pot roast, and it's just, it's just a, a good family warm time. And like I said, the art change when he goes back and forth to that little origin story is just it's it's intelligently written it's it's beautiful art simple like i said uh, rockwellian style art in this uh, this town that's just so so this beautiful little small town where everyone knows each other and it's just a little bit of that if you love that feel uh then you'll enjoy this so definitely pick up resident alien it's just uh, well done and i love that we're getting finally seeing glimpses into our main character's origin now coming in at number two it definitely felt like a one and two tie this week, but coming in at number two is the art winner and cover art winner of the week, and that is James Bond, 007 Hammerhead, issue number two from Dynamite Comics. And again, the covers Francisco Francovia, a bunch of black, white, blue, and it shows James Bond in the water with a great white shark. I mean, enough said, right? <laughs> it's beautiful, and it's I love black, white, silver. And it's sprinkled in with some red here because the shark is on a tear. But you initially have James Bond, uh, who is supposed to investigate a rich billionaire with who they think has some sort of motives into doing something dastardly. And James Bond has the the, the tux, the black and white tux. He has the uh, credentials and invitation to this really swanky dinner uh, political gala that's held what seems like in uh, in the Monterey Aquarium because it's just beautiful. And there's like a killer whale in the background. The setting is gorgeous. All of this blue toning light from the aquariums all surrounding them in this awesome, very posh gala is just so James Bondy. <laughs> It'll make you happy. <laughs> and of course, the rich billionaire has a, a, a beautiful daughter that he's very protective of. And of course, James Bond zeroes in right onto her. And she's very smart, though. And I love their dialogue as he's uh, ordering a martini. But he doesn't even have it shaken, not stirred. He's like, uh, he takes a dry martini with no let, a dash of Dolan, shaved ice and bitters with a large twist of lemon rind. Bond. That's right. James Bond. But it's just so iconic. It's just so James Bondy. You want this into a movie. Uh, this would, uh, it just has a very sort of uh, iconic look to James Bond. He's, you know, very handsomely drawn and... As things go nuts here and, and the sort of bad guys revealed, yeah, there's uh, the, the all of the surrounding aquariums are burst and the action sequences here are just drawn so well and so accurate. The hand-drawn Great White Shark is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. The two pages where the shark is sort of swimming around them and attacking sort of everyone is a lot of fun. And it's just action. It's definitely the action-adventure espionage pick of the week. And it is just good stuff. I think I've just been seriously longing for a good James Bond comic. And you, it delivers here. You absolutely, absolutely get that. And again, it's uh, written by Andy Dig Deagle, Diggle. And the art by Luca Casalanguida. And you have to say, Chris Blythe, colors, beautiful, man. Stay with the blues, blacks, whites, reds. Just live there, man. Stay there. It's beautiful. But 
Yes, twisty ending. I don't want to don't want to spoil it for you. So definitely check out. Uh, it's only on issue number two, folks. You can get it. So James Bond Hammerhead number two, fantastic. And like I said, art winner and cover art winner of the week. But with all that out of the way, the number one pick of the week for November 9th, New Comic Book Day, is from Marvel Comics, Daredevil. Daredevil issue number 13. And I tell you, Daredevil has really, really surprised me. It's uh, I love this brand new character, uh, the villain called Muse. I think that it's unique. It has a definite interesting visual look. And I tell you, it's uh, gruesome, haunting. The way they draw him, he's like wearing this sort of white uh, top tunic top with blood red eyes that are bleeding down his face, and uh, and it's it's scary looking. The cover even shows him shows Daredevil just wrapped in police tape. I love that look because it's set on a black background. It has a very Frank Miller type of feel here, which you get from Ron Garney's art. It's gorgeous. This is written by Charles Soule and colored by Matt Miller. And Matt is doing a fantastic, phenomenal job of his respect to Light Source and that Frank Miller type look to it, but adding his own sort of unique twist and uh, well done, I tell you. And the opening sequence here is interesting in that it's set in the courtroom kind of setting, which uh, Charles Soule has a lot of experience in. He's an, an actual attorney, the writer. And it's Daredevil um, trying to get out of the uh, the Atalan, Atilian, uh, world of the Inhumans, where Medusa's just turned him down, where he needed help, and Medusa was like, nope, you're out. But there is a Inhuman Secret Service agent, if you will, that's kind of secretly going to help uh, Daredevil here. But Blindspot is in court, and Muse has the judge by the th- with a knife on his throat, and clock is ticking. How can how can Matt uh, Daredevil make it to this courtroom? He uh, feels that Blindspot isn't quite ready for this level. Uh, Daredevil and Muse uh, had a tussle in the earlier issue, number thir- number twelve, and Daredevil knows he is for the uh, he has distractions. He has a, he's very deceptive. He has almost sleight of hand like moves. He's very super fast. Uh, Muse, uh, his fighting ability is like a level ten. He's keeping up with Daredevil, so he in no way has any confidence that that Blindspot will be able to handle Muse. And there's a lot of innocence here. He's got a lot of knives on him. That's his primary weapon, and he has the judge uh, like with a knife to his throat. And Blindspot calls Daredevil on the phone, and he's like, "What do I do? I need. I should just help." Like, and he's like, "No, don't do anything. Trust me." You're out of your league there, but but just hang on, I'm coming. And there's just a level of tension here that you just feel. Muse uh, begins to attack security guards and policemen, and, and he's killing people. They're firing at him, but he's so evasive. He has this judge by the throat with his arm around his neck. And blood, a blind shot's like, you gotta let me jump in here. I mean, I'm right here. I have to do something. And he's like... He's like, stall as much as you can. He's like, just just try to keep people from dying. And you can hear the tension and see the tension in, in Matt's face here. And he brings this uh, judge outside and then sets off a major distraction, which I don't, I don't want to give you every single detail because it's interesting here what he does. But uh, then he's headed into the sewers. That's right. <laughs> and Muse has this judge. And when he gets to his sort of hidden base, he has... Other people there stationed to to be victims to another piece of murderous art that Muse uh, wants to uh, have on display. And that's what's really kind of frightening and twisted about this character is that he's motivated by art. And so it's interesting and it's twisted in one respect, but you don't quite know his full motivation as to why he specifically is targeting Daredevil here. Or maybe he's not 
and Daredevil is just falling upon him, but he's about to create something gruesome with uh, with these victims he has all tied up because he's the one in the previous issues that has made this giant blood mural that was uh, made with the blood of 100 different people. So he's about to create some art here and uh, he needs to be stopped. But the ten tension level, you really feel it because it's, it's very... It's paced very well. The panels uh, show some great action, and it's just moving really fast. And Blindspot now has changed into his outfit. He's chasing Muse uh, into the depths of the sewer. And this little talk that Muse has with his victims here is uh, stuff of legend. Um, beautiful work here, Mr. Charles Soule, uh, because he's uh, he's he's talking art and he's talking about how what's inspiring him and how and what's he what's he going to do to take his blood murals to the next level and he lays out his weapons like his like he's laying out uh you know a, an easel of paints and it's all these knives and, and stabbing equipment and uh things to draw blood out of people and it's just gruesome and it's uh you're like, okay, clock is ticking. You just always feel like in this comic, like the, like the clock is ticking. And I love that because uh, it really adds the tension and uh, you really, it really builds really well. And he's starting to dissect some of these victims and finally, like, you're like, Bloodshot shows up. And so they have a tussle. Things go down. That's all I really want to tell you. It's, uh, it's great action. Bloodshot's going to be fighting Muse. That's what this is about. Or is it, does Daredevil make it? Does he make it in time to fight? Will these victims be victim to a new blood mural? Uh, will Muse uh, make a display of their innards uh, into the depths and sewers of New York? But, I mean, there's even a little scene, last I'll leave you off, where, where <laughs> Blindshot is, is, has to, at one point in this fight, uh, run in terror. And you feel it. You're like, oh my gosh, a hero is running from a bad guy in, like, terror. As he's climbing up the uh, the depths of the sewer on the ladder up to the, the you know, the... Uh, the, the the street uh, you know openings he's like his leg is grabbed and you're like ah and you're like it's just like uh, such great action and it's timing and the way that the panels display the art it's very clear and easy to understand what's happening that's one thing that happens in a lot of comic books with a lot of fast paced action is you can't sometimes tell exactly what's happening here uh, you can in this very clear very drawn beautifully Things zoom in at, mo at moments to make um, make it very clear as to what you need to look at and emphasizing certain certain art in the panel. And then it zoomed back out to show a little uh, more of an epic layout and where things are going. Action's done so well in this. So hats off. Beautiful, fantastic art. And uh, that's why it's the number one pick of the week. It's just that combination of great art, uh, great action, uh, fantastic writing, and a bad guy that is unique. I hope he sticks around. But uh, I, ho I hope they catch him as well. And so action-packed adventure, Daredevil just just performing on all eight cylinders. Beautiful stuff. So there you go. There you have it. Those are my recommendations this week for a new comic book day, November 9th. Please, I implore you, go to a local comic book shop, walk right in, go to the counter, say, hey, Chris from Sunspots Comics sent me, and buy these comic books immediately. These eight will not disappoint you. Good, beautiful stuff. Fantastic comic books. If you have any questions, comments, or you'd like a personal recommendation, just email me directly, chris at sunspotscomics.com. If I choose your email and discuss it on a podcast, I will send you a comic book prize just for me as a little thank you. And please sign up for our, our newsletter on sunspotscomics.com slash contact. And tune in next week. Issue number 81 is a doozy. <laughs> I'll be reading 18 comics for November 16th and five new number ones, so, you know, 23 potentially 
that I'll be reading. I hope I get all five of them, that my local comic book shop will have all these new five number ones that I want to get so I can talk to uh, you about them and recommend uh, them to you if they're great. That's the only kind of stuff I recommend to you is the great stuff. And there's some awesome stuff coming out next week. Just a few things I'm excited about. Cave Carson has a cybernetic eye number two. Doctor Strange 14. Hadrian's Wall number three. Great sci-fi action. Hillbilly number five. Invincible. This Invincible's uh, number 133 is coming. This is sort of the start of the end. I think it's 12 issues to the ending where Invincible will be over for all time. And that comes out next week. So good chance, high chance that's going to be one of the picks of the week because it's consistently always great. So tons of stuff coming in uh, next week that I'll be discussing. So please tune in. I would appreciate it. And thank you, thank you, thank you again for listening. Thank you, Miles Greb, uh, for the fantastic interview. Thank you, Howard Shapiro, for submitting your hockey comic books to me. And please, if you would like to help us here at Sunspots Comics, just subscribe to our podcast, go to iTunes, give us a positive review with five stars. I will personally thank you right here on a future podcast, and it really will help Sunspots Comics if you give us a positive review, review and subscribe. So there you go, my folks. Please uh, tune in next week. I'll see you then. Thank you so much for listening and be water, my friend. Don't forget, be like water. Place where your love is shared the same for the stories where the hero saves the girl somehow. Where love no further friends, the adventure never ends. We will save the world somehow. It's Sunspots Comics now.